The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius, your source for horror, sci-fi, suspense, and all things violent. Hey, what's going on, guys? Thank you so much for joining me today on Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius. Today we have episode 137. End of the episode, I will play chapters from Beyond Brightside. That's chapters uh, 17 and 18 today. Yeah, hopefully you're digging it, still uh, sticking with the story. If you haven't heard it, you can go back to the other episodes, check out the first chapters. Um, so today, I do not have a guest. I did not plan ahead. I kind of took the week off trying to uh, enjoy the holidays, trying not to worry about work, um, and also dealing with some mental health stuff. Uh, something <clears throat> I realized I need to get across is with my book, the TBI book, um, Brain Hope and Awareness to People with TBI. Actually, my whole goal with the book is to improve people's brain health. One thing I need to make clear is I am saying to improve your brain health, not to fix it. Not any kind of claim that I've fixed my own brain health, because I definitely have not. Um, the meeting that I had with Dr. Lakata definitely helped a lot, uh, made some things clear to myself. Um, I'm going to get another brain scan, brain map. I already did that. Uh, part of the reason for that is it's something that I had wanted to do. Um, it's going to force me to get out of the house and to, like on the days that I go and do brain training in Pasadena at Vital Head and Spine, um, I will also go do jiu-jitsu and marketing the book and stuff like that. So that will be good. It will kind of force me to do that. Um, prior, I had realized, you know, I still need to work on my brain, but because so much time was off, it's easy to think like, okay, I'm doing awesome. I'm doing great. And especially when stress is low. But with the stress of the holiday, with not working out as much, with news about COVID or whatever else, with there's just a lot of different factors with the release of a book that has had problems, like the TBI book still is not enabled for distribution uh, in the paper, in the hardcover, which is incredibly frustrating. So I've been dealing with Lightning Source on that, trying to get that fixed. Um, just a lot of things that could have been better um so and i have to take responsibility for it i'm not here to bitch but i am here to say that yeah i've realized that i still am struggling with things um something i did the other day was going i was starting to go back into the cold water because one of my problems is i will on the all the different treatments and therapies that i wrote about i will do great for a while <clears throat> i will get the benefits i'll realize it's really good and then it's easy to stop I do that every year with the cold water. Generally, I'll get back into it around this time. And it's really hard at first. Then I'll do it throughout winter. And then I'll stop for whatever reason instead of continuing it, even though I know it's healthy for me. Um, so doing it the other day just made me realize, and I did it with my son, which was awesome. It wasn't that cold. He was up for the challenge. Um, it was an awesome bonding experience. And we we're just hugging each other and having fun and being brave together. And that was really cool. Um, so I need to get back into that. I need to get back into a regular breathing uh, routine and meditation. That's something I <clears throat> completely fell off of. I generally try to do classes with Joey House. I do his private online classes. Uh, he has those Tuesdays and also Tuesday mornings, Thursday nights. Um, 
lot of times I've been working out or I have other things going on at that time. So I've been missing those classes. I haven't been doing it on my own. So again, I'm not doing the things that I need to do in order to deal with any symptoms that I don't like. So whether it's like I could feel uh, my impulsivity going back up. Um, if I'm under a lot of stress, I can get angry. I can get defensive. <clears throat> All these things have not been fixed. Uh, part of that is probably due to not looking hard enough at uh, the emotional stuff. So how I'm still responding to things, you know, how that's ingrained into, um, you know, our, our psyche or whatever. So I need to probably work on those things, break those things. But I know the neural feedback is going to point out a lot of stuff. It will show me where my attention and focus is. It will show me what parts of the brain are, <clears throat> you know, under-functioning or over-functioning. But in my case, it's under-functioning. Um, so I think that's going to be incredibly helpful. I will share those results with you when I get them, whether good, bad, whatever. Um, but whatever the case is, and this is something that I pointed out uh, in last week's video. Hopefully you had a chance to check that out with Dr. Ricotta. I thought that the Dr. Gordon episodes were excellent. Uh, you can learn a lot about brain health between the two of those guys. Those are the people that helped me probably the most. Um, so check those out. But something he said last week, which I completely forgot about now because my memory sucks. Uh, but again, that could be because of cannabis. Uh, so, you know, I'm not going to worry too much about why my brain health isn't where I want it. But I think it's really good to acknowledge, okay, yeah, this is not fixed. It is a journey. That's something uh, Dr. Gordon's daughter, Allison said, like, this isn't like you just take a pill and you're better. It's not you do a treatment and you're better. Like this is lifelong. Uh, <clears throat> my eating habits have gone downhill. You know, I, I was taking Dr. Gordon's uh, brain care every morning and then I stopped and went back to caffeine. There's really no reason to do that except for being lazy and it's a habit or whatever else. I was feeling better on the brain care. So I, I need to go back onto that. Uh, I need to stick with a much a less inflammatory diet. Uh, all these things I know what to do but it's very easy to get away from them, especially when it's holiday time. So that is my goal. I'm going to do that. That way I can keep up with the demands of being an author and marketer and publisher and all that shit, which I'm getting, I've been having a tough time with that. <clears throat> I would love just to be able to write again, um, just being able to work on my own stuff or the try not to dies uninterrupted like that would be awesome not having to worry about anything else not having to worry about advertising not having to worry about any of that shit would be excellent but that's not where i'm at so right now if i want to be successful i have to do it all or find people that can do it for me you know i still haven't reached out to the different agents and publishers that were interested in my work from germany it's been on my to-do list but i have not done it so only have myself to blame on that shit um but yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. So, hmm, what else? What else? What else? I think that's about it, guys. I'm going to wrap this up because, again, it's a Friday. Got a busy day. Have to take my son to the doctor, put out a newsletter, uh, work on trying not to die in the Wild West. I'm trying to get back onto that. I really want to finish it before the end of the year. I want to give my copy back to John Palisano so he can clean it up. Uh, hopefully, we'll have it done by March, and then it'll be out in June. Um, and I also need to call Steve Montgomery and ask him where the hell Super High is. I know he's been incredibly busy. Um, so 
but that book is so close to being done so i just want to finish it uh also have some other exciting news with some new authors that are joining the try not to die family or just about like 99 percent so i'm not going to mention them until the contract is signed but i think that should happen relatively soon so it's all good stuff um but yeah so when i'm talking about brain health and improving brain health remember i'm not saying i fixed my brain um you know if you end up seeing me in the news for doing some crazy shit in a couple of years don't know what happened that's not what's going to happen i'm going to make sure that doesn't happen but uh yeah just make sure to take care of yourself realize that it is a you know if it's important to you which it is for me uh you just have to be aware of it so long i've been just letting this stuff build up kind of ignoring it like oh, i'm fine i'm fine i'm fine and like mm, you know what that like i don't like that reaction i don't like how that's making me feel i don't like this about myself i don't like that so if i don't like those reactions then i need to do something to change it and i have the tools to do it i already know what works for me so it's a matter of doing it like right after this i'm going to go into the pool then i will go into the sauna then i will write my newsletter and i'll be feeling so much better i'll be feeling so less anxious so less overwhelmed um i'll be working on my breathing when i'm in the sauna as well so i'll be hitting many things so you got meditation you got this infrared sauna and i have the cold therapy so that'll take maybe an hour hour and a half of my day <clears throat> but it'll be putting me in a really good place. And while in the sauna, I'm also gonna get some writing done too after the meditation. So it is all good. So just figure out what works for you. Get help if you need it, like I'm doing with Vital Head and Spine and Dr. Gordon, uh, making sure I'm keeping up on all my supplements. So, and it will make a big difference. So whatever you're dealing with, hopefully, uh, you know, and if you've read TBI uh, or CTE and you've gotten something good from it, please let me know. That means a lot. I've heard from a lot of people that have read it in one sitting. Um, and whether you are the person that's dealing with the traumatic brain injury or poor brain health or the family member, um, I think it could definitely be helpful. So if you do have a good reaction to it, I would love to know what helped you the most. Uh, that would be super cool. All right, guys, <clears throat> I'm going to get out of here, leaving on chapter 16, uh, 17 and 18 of Beyond Brightside. Hopefully you dig it. This is narrated by Darren Elliker. I will be back next week, hopefully with a very cool guest. We shall see. All right, guys, have an incredible weekend, and I will talk to you later. Peace. Chapter 17 Fingers stroked my cheek, the light touch of a woman. Soft and sweet like she was talking to Mello, Becky said. There you go. You got this. I forced my eyes open, the lids all crusty. Becky's outline was all I could see in the dark, her face fading in and out with the streetlight shadows. You okay? I was about the farthest thing from that, but squeaked out. Yeah. I closed my eyes, hoping it'd take all the awfulness away, but it only made things worse. Brendan holding a knife to Debbie's throat while she rocked my mother's decapitated head. Joe, come on, Becky said, her shock saying she was picking up my every thought. I opened my eyes and cleared my mind best I could. From behind me where I couldn't see, a man said, He's up? Becky told me, That's Tone. She read my confusion and said, The other night outside Kevin's, you know, the underground, we're in his van. 
That was all new to me, and I couldn't have described tone if my life depended on it. Everything had calmed down, my thinking included. A sluggishness where the pieces weren't quite connecting. Try some water. Think you can sit up a bit? Becky leaned closer, her cheek swollen and purple. I can raise your head. I tried to do it myself, but a stabbing pain spiked the front of my shoulder, put me back down on the futon. Just relax. Becky got on her knees beside the futon and slid one arm under my neck, held the water bottle to my lips. Slow, she warned. You don't want to puke again. I'd thought that nasty smell was the van, but it was my breath. The water helped, revitalizing everything it coated. Soon as I felt I could handle the answer, I asked, What happened? The Vicodin. I'm so sorry. I had no idea it could do that. Tone shushed her. No one would. Only people with sensitivity to it would react like that. To me, he said, We'll get you something else for the pain, but no more of that. We'll steer clear of all acetaminophen, too. I kept silent to conserve energy. What happened with Sarah and Danny? Becky looked toward the front of the van, although she already knew the story. They got hit this afternoon, maybe three o'clock. It felt like someone slammed their fist in my stomach. Hit? Coordinated raid by the boots. I was posted down the street, saw the whole setup. Two motorhomes pulled up and let out four teams of three. Two took the front, two stormed the back. Very professional. I assumed Danny and Sarah had been killed, but braved the question. They murdered them? No shots were fired either side, as far as I could tell. Knowing where I was going with it, Tone said, My windows were down. I would have heard the silencer. The whole house would have been lit up. About ten minutes after the raid, the boots walked out Danny and Sarah, heads down and handcuffed, but looking unharmed. Yeah, for now. They'll execute them. Probably show the whole thing on the news. Unless they went willingly. What do you mean? What if Sarah called herself in? She did it before to get into Brightside. She could have claimed you forced them along. She wouldn't. You know how scared she was, that she kept considering it. I could barely remember my own name let alone what thoughts Sarah shared around me. Either way, they're gone. Same with all our things. Becky motioned behind her. We've got way better stuff in those bags than we had at Kevin's. Fuck, the morphine. We'll find you something to take the edge off. I was going to need something a lot stronger than that. How much longer? We're a couple minutes away. Why don't you try sitting up all the way? I said I'd try and Becky helped me up the motion of the van making me queasy. Just breathe. Maybe close your eyes. You're going to be fine, Joe. Deep breathing helped calm my body, and Tone kept the window down so the cold air would keep me awake. I had just sipped some water when Tone pulled to the curb. There wasn't much to see out the windshield besides a small liquor store across the street. Tone said, I'll be right back, and exited the van. Walked around the front and up a driveway. He snapped off the chain draped across it and dropped the links to the concrete. When he got back behind the wheel, Becky said, That's some heavy-duty security. Less is more. You'll be surprised what the smallest deterrent can do. Tone took us into the lot and parked the van so he could put the chain back up. There were only two spots taken in the parking lot. A beat-up red Buick and a silver Sonata parked beside each other, 
neck and neck in a race for the exit. Tone took us around the lot, a locked gate blocking us from the back, where two SUVs sat. He circled toward the exit before parking and said, Always know your way out. I couldn't tell what the windowless white brick building was. Becky pointed out the initials on the sign above the front door. VFW. Veterans of Foreign Wars. When I was a kid, my dad pointed out our local VFW every time we passed it. Said there were some great guys in there. It was a special place. A place where his family couldn't follow him. Tone locked his door behind him and walked around to the side of the van. The door slid open, and Tone stood there, a black submachine gun slung around his shoulder, mostly hidden by his jacket. Becky, put the guns in that bag and bring it with. Joe, let me give you a hand. How about Mello? Should I leave him? Tone nodded as he stepped inside to help me to my feet. Will be less than an hour. The key is to keep moving, not stick to one place too long. My ankle hurt more than I expected, but at least the pain took away some of the lingering sickness. When we got onto the concrete, I told Tone I needed a second. No problem. Becky joined us, a black duffel bag in hand. Ready? Tone handed me off to her and said, Hold on. He disappeared into the van, came right back with a wheelchair. He unfolded it and tossed a cardboard sign onto the futon. Here, Joe, take a load off. I can make it. Tone stayed where he was, holding the chair so it wouldn't roll. I know you can, but I want you resting. Becky helped lower me into the chair, then fixed it so I could prop up my feet. She asked Tone, When were you in a wheelchair? Picked it up at the thrift store. Every so often I'll use it for my disguise. No one ever looks at the dude in the wheelchair, especially if he's got one of these. He pointed at the cardboard sign. Scrawled in messy marker, it read, Need help. My fuzzy unicorn got hit by a dragon. I'd never been inside a VFW hangout, but I imagined it had smell of spilled coffee and day-old donuts. Tone rolled me up the ramp and waved toward the sign above the door. I couldn't see the camera. Where is it? He pointed at the black period after the W. An older guy, squat and short, with an even tighter flat top than Tone, opened the door. He looked like a fire plug in his red flannel, hand on his holstered pistol. Tone said, It's all good, Angel, and rolled me in past a desk with a bank of monitors that Angel returned to. We went through the archway and into the main hall. The overhead lights were too bright for the room. The large square floor tiles, the ceiling panels, and painted brick walls all white. The only color besides the black metal folding chairs placed along the plastic tables lining both sides of the hall was the goddamn American flag. Not in here, Tone thought, as he rolled me toward the dozen or so men bunched at the other end by the small stage. I don't give a fuck what you think outside of here, but just remember all the men that fought for that flag. I wasn't in any shape to argue to try and explain how that symbol of freedom was the biggest hypocrisy. Land of the free, unless you have extra abilities. Tone stopped the chair. You fucking serious? I said I was sorry, and counted the tiles, messing up the math, but keeping my brain busy so I wouldn't irritate him anymore. Tone cleared his throat. <clears throat> Guys, I'd like to introduce you to Joe Nolan, Hank's son, and Becky Glynn. There's over 200,000 on each of their heads. The closest guys were outside of my range, so I couldn't tell if any of them were thinking of turning us in.
They've proven their bravery and have suffered because of it. The men came forward and introduced themselves, shaking Becky's hand and nodding to me like I looked too delicate to touch. The names rattled off. Johnny, Jay, Chip, and Sherman. Curtains, Bolo, Dirt, and Stubbs. The only one I knew I'd remember, thanks to his wheelchair and missing legs. I never knew there were so many telepaths in the military. Not all these guys are military, and not all of them are telepaths. I looked around the room, wondering who was safe from my thoughts. So why are they here? Dirt said, Because we all believe you gotta fight for what's fair. Tone said, Johnny, you got your medical gear? I need someone to look at his shoulder. He just dealt with a severe reaction to Vicodin. He's good with morphine, but lost his supply. Johnny walked over, brushed his hair back with both hands. I'll check him out, but I don't have my gear. He looked around the group. Anyone else? The guys I was turned toward shook their heads. Someone from behind said, I could spare a couple dilaudid. Thanks, Bill, Tone said. Johnny, how about you take Joe and Becky over there? We've got some new developments to discuss. I didn't know why he didn't want us hearing the talk, but I didn't care. All I wanted was to feel better. Johnny rolled me to the farthest table, backed the chair to the edge so I couldn't roll away. His nose said he was a drinker. His breath said Budweiser. He leaned over my shoulder and raised the damp bandage. What happened? A couple days ago, a sniper. Four, Becky said. Tone started his speech by saying, The SSS is quickly becoming the largest police force in the world. But I was paying attention to Johnny, who eased my arm out of the sling and rested it on the table. Johnny asked if I was cool, so I gave him a nod. He unwrapped the bandage and asked, It's been bleeding this whole time? Becky said, It hadn't been until an hour ago. We fought with boots. I hoped the boots' blood had soaked through my windbreaker, but I guessed it was mine. Johnny peeled back the final piece of fabric with a wet schlop. He covered his thoughts with a song, but his wince was involuntary. How bad. He did his best to stay positive. Well, that's not your blood. But? This wound hasn't been cleaned. We've been running for our lives, Becky said. I'm just saying, it's infected. You need more help than I can give. It had been about twenty minutes and I was feeling so much better with a new white t-shirt and clean outer bandage. A couple of the guys came up and introduced themselves. Sherman, the skinny guy with big ears, sat with us. He said he was honored. He'd served with my dad. Tone stayed on stage with Chip, whose thin glasses and nicely combed hair made him look like an insurance salesman. Everyone else grabbed a seat at the first couple of tables and faced the stage. Becky wheeled me to the second table on the right and sat down beside me. Chip pulled up a stool several feet away from the wall and set a laptop on it. He messed with it and then went over to the doorway, flipped off the lights. A bright projection from the laptop lit the wall. I couldn't read anything from my angle and distance, but could make out the map. Tone pointed at the yellow circle and said, Okay, so here's where we're at. Everything circle blue is boot activity. Red dots are the base stations we know about. Dirt, the guy with the gray beard and long hair, who sounded like he was from Georgia, said, Well, hot damn. A couple others sighed. 
The chubby-cheeked guy whose name I forgot sitting in front of me thought we were fucked. Listen up. I know this situation does not look good, but we've been up against worse. Sanchez said, Tone, let's have the state. Tone stared at him. So we quit? We turn ourselves in? He looked about the room, connected eyes with everyone. Is that what we do? Sanchez was quick with his, No, sir. The rest joined in, even Becky, goosebumps down my arm. All I could think was, Holy shit, we're all fucking nuts. Tone gave a stiff nod, went back to the map. Yeah, so they're pretty much everywhere. Dirt asked, So what do we do? What's our mission? There's still been no word from Hank since our last meeting, so the plan stays. Unless we hear different, we strike on Sunday. We just sit and wait. Well, there is a side mission that's completely voluntary. Joe and Becky intend on infiltrating a detention center. Someone laughed. Someone else said, That's fucking crazy. A couple others close enough to eavesdrop on were thinking the same thing. Becky stood up so everyone could see her. They have my parents. I'm going with or without anyone else. Again, totally voluntary, Tone said. Raise your hands if you're in. We'll need help on the ground once we've narrowed down where they're at. Someone said, Nearly every city has their own detention center. Uh, that's what at least half those red dots are. Chip asked, What's the address? No one knew what he was talking about. Chip looked at Becky. What's your parents' address? Becky rattled it off and Chip punched it into his keypad. He typed the screen, a red marker hovering over a patch of green on the map. Most likely location? The marker moved across the map, stopped at another patch on the other side of the freeway. Here's a second. Becky thanked him, asked him for the park's names. Tone held up his hand. So, who wants to pay this park a visit? I'm willing to drive them there. Dirt stepped forward. Wouldn't miss it. Four other hands went up. Okay, it's settled. Those that want in can meet us here tomorrow after sunset. We'll aim on leaving at seven. Becky said, Thank you. Angel spoke up from the lobby, where he was watching the TV monitors. Shit, I think we've got a problem. What is it? Two motorhomes just pulled up, each one blocking an exit. Chapter 18 The overhead speaker buzzed to life. Angel said, A team of four-armed boots just exited the motorhome. Second team of four is out the other. Tone took control, silenced us with his stare. He asked Angel, What's the exit look like? Still clear. Eight boots, all out front. I'd hurry, though. Tone told us, We're secure in here, but not for long. They'll just wait us out. Dirt gripped the M16 he had slung across his back. Then let's boogie. We only got two vehicles back there. Fit ten at most. Angel said, Don't count on me. I'm watching the fort. Stubbs nodded at me when he rolled past with a smile. Sorry, Angel. I can't let you be the hero all by yourself. He kept rolling toward the lobby. Sounded almost happy. In fact, I'm going one-up your allegiance. Go have a talk with these inquisitive gentlemen. No one tried to talk him out of whatever he had planned. Jay saluted Tone and jogged after Stubbs. I'll cover you. Stubbs rolled into the hallway and spun his chair so he was facing the front door. Just get me something white. 
Angel announced. Both teams spreading out, 20 yards from front door. Stubbs looked right at us and ordered, No one open the back door till I give the signal. Everyone nodded. Tone told our group, The plan stays the same for Sunday. Meet at secondary location. The speaker was still on and caught Angel speaking to Stubbs at the front door. You sure about this? Everyone but me had a gun out. Sanchez, Chip, and Johnny led the charge for the back of the building. Tone rolled me right behind them, nothing but white walls and floor whizzing by, that in the stress making me sick. Sherman was close enough that I could hear him thinking he'd protect me. He owed my dad. You'll be all right, kid. Jay, you take this, Stubbs said over the speaker. Lock the door behind me. Yes, sir. There was a loud creak of the door and Stubbs shouting, Don't fire! Don't fire! I have information! We filled the small room with the emergency exit, the blood-red words never more true. We held our breath and waited for gunfire. Stubbs shouted, Can I come out? I'm in a wheelchair. The door clicked closed. Angel said, Stubbs has ain't guns trained on him, but no one's firing. He's being directed to the North Motorhome. Becky thought, we shouldn't have let him go. Most weapons are lowered. Two boots talking with him. Someone in a blue windbreaker just exited the East Motorhome. Becky gripped my good arm, her fingers making dents. They'll know he's lying. The Sentinel's walking over. There are five boots on Stubbs, three focused on the front door. Still all clear in back. I wish Tom would hurry up and open the door. With all the people surrounding Stubbs, I worried he wouldn't be able to give his signal. Tone thought, don't ever doubt the word of one of my brothers. A massive boom rocked the building, my chair rolling into Chip's shoe. Angel shouted, holy shit, Stubbs took out the whole motorhome. There was no time for sadness, just the back door being kicked open and everyone rushing out. Tone turned hard out of the doorway and almost tipped me. I gripped the handle hard with my left hand my right clenched in a useless fist. The SUVs were roughly ten yards away when Becky stopped running. You guys go, she said when we passed her. I'm not leaving Mallow. Tone stopped so fast I flew forward, my grip on the chair the only thing keeping my face off the floor. He didn't even notice me on my knees, all his focus on Becky. Get your ass moving, he ordered. It's a fucking cat. Becky stood her ground and stuck out her hand. The keys... Tone dug them out of his pocket and tossed them to her. I used the chair to stand. Hold still a second. What the hell are you doing? Get your ass in that vehicle. Becky ran back into the building. I started after her and said, She's my mission. Dirt broke off from the rest of the men bunched around the SUVs. He threw me a nod and told Tone, I got him, dog. Meet up Sunday. Angel was at his desk in the lobby, Becky right behind him, gun held like she was going to storm Normandy. He pointed to the top right monitors, two boots by the front door, the third standing by the van, holding his head looking at the scattered limbs. A thousand questions raced through my mind. Is the door locked? Can they get through? Why aren't we going with Tone? Is this a heart attack? Angel said, I got this, and picked up a walkie-talkie. He pressed the button, and a giant explosion blasted the two monitors black and knocked me into his desk. Dirt took position at the front door. Pop it! Sherman, who I didn't realize was with us, said, I'll go left and clear the motorhome. The door cracked open and black smoke rushed in, sirens growing louder. 
Dirt crouched down and Duck walked forward, rifle at the ready, disappeared into the smoke. We held our breath, gripping our guns tight, eyes on the upper left monitor. Three shots were fired, and the lone boot dropped face first. Now, Dirt shouted, don't slip. Becky went first with me right behind, the bitter smoke too thick to see what we were sliding on or who was still shooting. We cleared the smoke and Becky sprinted for the van, its lights flashing when she unlocked it with a remote. My foot caught on something and I spun around screaming, opening fire on the boot holding my leg. Only he didn't have hands to hold it with, didn't have a head to absorb the bullets ricocheting off the concrete. Dirt ran up and grabbed my gun. Finger off the trigger. He's dead. It took me a second to realize what I was seeing. My entire boot stuck in the boot's rib cage, bone and blood rubbing on my calf. Dirt held me still and said, Come on, we've got to hurry. The rib cage cracked as I jerked my foot free, rushing sirens blocking out the sound. Dirt pulled me away from the mess, but the scene in front of us was just as awful. Three boots with holes in their faces. Sherman stretched out on his back, sucking his last breaths. The one motorhome was intact. The driver slumped over the wheel. The other was in two. Both pieces burning, fire licking the street. The van's side door was wide open, Becky already inside. We were almost to the door when Tone came running through the smoke. He yelled, Becky, stay there. Throw the keys up front. Dirt rushed me to the van with an arm around my waist. Tone was in the driver's seat, the van running by the time Dirt set me on the futon and slammed the door behind us. In all the fire and smoke, it looked like we were driving straight to hell, the taste of sulfur on my tongue, my throat so tight and dry. My heart wouldn't stop racing, and I worried it was going to burst. We thudded off the sidewalk and skidded around the burning metal. Dirt put his arm across my chest so I wouldn't go flying. He kept repeating, breathe, Joe. Becky sat on the other side of him. Everyone breathe. It felt like we were going way too slow, that it was just a matter of time before sirens caught up. Tone assured me we were doing the speed limit. Dirt, hold his gun for him. I handed it over, my palms so sweaty it nearly slipped out. Becky held Mello tight to her chest. Where are we headed? Shelter, at least temporary. So how the fuck did they find us? We were either tracked or followed. I didn't see anyone following us. Me either. Dirt searched my eyes for an answer before asking his question. Either of you have any direct contact with Boots? Any chance they might have placed something on you or the vehicle? I couldn't think of anything and shook my head. Becky said, We got rid of everything we had from both Kevin's and my parents. I remembered Brendan's radio on my belt. Debbie's phone in the windbreaker pocket. For a split second, I considered not saying anything, but everyone had heard the thought. Tone shouted, What the fuck? I said dump everything! Not to me, you didn't. Tone tore into me, but Becky shouted back even louder. He was sick! He didn't hear you, and it doesn't do any good shouting at him! The windbreaker was bunched on the floor. Dirt bent over and came back with the phone, pulled the radio off my belt. He asked Tone, How close are we? Is it safe to chuck it here? Tone rolled down the front window. Do it. Dirt sent them sailing out the window. Nice and calm, he asked me. Anything else you might have? Any electronics? 
I shook my head. Felt like the biggest failure. More people dead because of me. The rest of the ride was straight tension, but uneventful. We took a large bridge over an empty wash and made the first right we came to. Tone parked alongside the trees that lined the wash's fence. Dirt, I need you to stay with the vehicle. Make sure we weren't followed. It was a tight fit, but Tone joined us in the back, switched places with Dirt. He stopped right in front of me, hunched over so there wasn't but a foot between our faces. No more fuck-ups, he told me. We're running out of chances. We both nodded because there wasn't any use arguing. Tone shrugged on his jacket and tucked the submachine gun so it wasn't visible. Put the windbreaker in the bag. Same with the guns. Becky brought the biggest bag onto the futon and filled it up. Tone slid open the door. Bring whatever you can carry. I don't know if we're coming back. When I got out, Becky handed me the smallest bag. She carried three, with Mello balancing on top. Tone slipped behind the trees. The opening's this way. A large hole had been cut in the fence. Tone grabbed one end and peeled it back even more for me. Through here. It was hard making out much with just the moonlight, but we were on a path that had been trampled through the bushes and grass. Tone led the way, gun tucked, making me feel safe. Keep your eyes straight ahead, and your business to yourself. Unless it's one of my men, you don't trust anyone. There's plenty of good people down here, but most will turn if a gun is aimed at them, and your asses are worth plenty. The trail ended at the top of the wash. Tone took us along the edge until we came to a slope. What's here? Shelter, he said, in a way that meant he'd had about all he could fucking stand of me. To our left, there was nothing but dirt, mud, and an endless debris covering the concrete riverbed. To the right, under the bridge were dozens of tents, just as many shacks, double that for cardboard box homes, only a foot or two separating each dwelling. Tone took us through the tents, careful not to trip, the sound of vehicles rumbling overhead. More than half the residents were outside, smoking cigarettes, playing cards, keeping an eye on us. Two women with matted hair and dirty clothes passed a bottle between them. At the next tent over, a large bald man with a gray goatee was sitting on a crate and holding a little girl who looked a few years older than Sharon's daughter. I started thinking some sad shit, but Tone shut me down. How about you look at your feet like I told you? We got to the darkest part under the bridge, where cardboard boxes, wooden pallets, and pieces of rotting wood were cast together to make several structures. We were four deep when Tone stopped in front of a makeshift shack and set the plywood door to the side. He held back a black curtain and motioned us forward. Inside. Becky went first with me right behind, the smell of mold and mildew hitting me hard. It was too dark to see anything, so Becky held still until Tone joined us and flipped on a cheap plastic lamp, the light so low I could barely see the walls. Tone pointed at the hanging black blanket blocking the corner. Shitter's in there. To cut down on the bugs, keep your bags zipped and sleep with them on the bed. Becky set the bags and mellow on the tiny single mattress, taking up half the room. We sleep with it open? Tone thought of the plywood he'd set beside the opening. I'll slide the panel in place when I leave. You prop this two-by-four behind it. I thought that wouldn't stop anyone, 
but it'll slow them down, Tone said. He turned for the exit. Give you a warning. Where are you going to sleep? I'm headed back to the van. Need to do damage control. See what kind of fucking mess we're in now. Neither of us said a word. Tone pointed at the small blue ice chest at the foot of the mattress. Help yourself to anything in there and rest up for tomorrow, he said as he slipped past the blanket. I pointed to the strip of brown carpet beside the mattress. I can sleep there just fine. Don't be foolish. Get on the bed. You're sure? Becky peeled back the thin blue sheet and helped ease me onto my back, her bruised face looking so fragile. Sitting made me feel better, but lying down was best, closing my eyes, pretending this shit wasn't real. Joe, we've got to get your boots off. Why bother? Um, because I'd rather not have that nastiness on our only sheet. I don't know how long we're going to be here. I tried to open my eyes, but couldn't get control yet, the sickness making me an emotional wreck. It's okay, Becky told me. I got it. You relax. I managed to take in a deep breath, hold it for an extra second. The boot that had been inside a boot slipped right off, but Becky struggled with the left because of the tape and swelling. Becky almost said something about my foot, but changed direction and took off my duty belt, left the gun in the holster close enough to reach at the edge of the bed. You think we should? You'll sleep better, and honestly, one second isn't going to make much difference. Becky patted my leg and said, Hold on a second. She picked up Mello and set him on my lap. Keep him company while I get changed. She propped the plywood door in place. And don't feel bad about me doing all the hard work. She tested the top of the board. Sturdier than I thought. Mello made it easier to breathe, but I felt like shit about not being able to do anything. Becky knelt and unzipped the black bag, checked both submachine guns and set them beside the holster. Safety's off. Do not pick up unless you're ready to fire. Got it. Becky took clothes behind the blanket. And I was joking. Thank you for having my back. The mattress, which had probably belonged to some kid, was very small. I thought of scooting to the wall, but no way I could wiggle over on my own. Plus, I was the one who should be closest to the door. I gladly blocked bullets for Becky. Whether it was the pill or the sickness, I could barely keep my eyes open. I didn't even hear Becky until she was climbing over me. Her gray pajamas, pure softness, skimming over my forearms. Her fruity perfume, covering up the sickness and decay. I felt so much guilt for shoving her into this situation. She stayed hovered over me and said, Joe, look at me. She was less than a foot away. Could kill me in a heartbeat. Keeping it quiet, her blue eyes on mine, she thought. You've risked more for me than most anyone else, and you haven't done anything worse than I have. We're trying to live. Thank you for that. This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network.